what is Russia? And if some who will tell you that Russia is a European country, is absolutely not true. But if some who will tell you that Russia is Asian country, is not true as well. It's absolutely different entity. I don't believe that Russia, after Putin, can be changed in a very democratic way, even if Navalny one day will be next leader of this country, because in the Russian DNA is so many elements very well described by Montefiore. That is such understanding of of the greatness, that is um, the feeling of imperial role in the world. That is very, very complicated combination of behaviors, of understanding, of feelings, of values, etc., etc. Alexander Kwasniewski served two terms as president of Poland between 1995 and 2005. He won office the first time by defeating the incumbent, Lesz Wałęsa, who had gained international renown as the leader of the Solidarity Movement. By the time Kwasniewski was emphatically re-elected in 2000, he was perceived as part of a global generation of youngish, centre-leftish social democrats, a sort of Eastern European Tony Blair or Bill Clinton. He led Poland into the EU and NATO and oversaw the adoption of Poland's current constitution. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Alexander Kwasniewski in his office in Warsaw for the big interview. I did want to start by asking a bit about what your organization here does now. How would you describe the mission? My foundation, to some extent, is an idea how to continue some important elements of my presidency. So this Eastern orientation and help for Eastern countries like Ukraine, Moldova, to be closer to EU, and how to democratize such countries like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Central Asia. It was my idea during the presidential time, and, and I try to continue now through my foundation. And the second important element, what was also very visible in my legacy, is the question of reconciliation. We have a lot of projects, of ideas, we organize many events, and we know that still is, is, is a lot to do. Do you think that has been then the overarching theme of your career in politics, that idea of trying to move, I guess, what you might think of as Western liberalism further east? Yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, liberalists that today have different connotations, you know, but, uh, but, but I want to speak about democracy, about human rights, about rights of minorities, about a well-organized uh, market economy. What means well-organized? That is, well-organized market economy is able to keep a balance between the profits and some social sensitivity, you know. This is fighting against inequality as well. Mm. So there's much more... That is like in German constitution or in, in, in the Polish constitution, that is a social market economy, you know, that, that's, that's this idea which I would like to transfer or to promote in, in these countries. When you first joined the Polish United Workers' Party as a, as, as a younger man, at that time, late 70s, early 80s, did communism seem eternal to you? Did you think that this was what Poland was always going to be? Well, I tell you, that is one of the accusations from this old communist against my generation mm. inside the party, that we are not very much ideological. We mm. were much more pragmatic. And uh, I tell you why me and uh, my, my colleagues, friends, why we decided to, to join Communist Party in the mid of 70s. Because Poland was in a very special situation. We, we had a leader of the party, Gerek, who was working many years in France and Belgium. He was absolutely the most pro-West oriented uh, communist leader in all the Soviet bloc. He started with some good ideas of liberalization of economy, of political life. 
że my tak samo jak wy jesteśmy ulepieni z tej samej gliny i nie mamy innego celu jak ten, który żeśmy zdeklarowali i to jest podstawowy program naszego działania. Jeśli nam pomożecie, to sądzę, że ten cel uda nam się wspólnie osiągnąć. Jak? Pomożecie! Of course, the problem what we understood on the end of the communism that this system was was impossible to reform fully. Mm-hmm. So that that's the pillars, the fundamentals of the system were were wrong. And and you know all these ideas about socialism with human face or some other concepts were were uh, were frankly speaking naive. But we believe that it's possible to have socialism with with uh, human face. And we tried to to do it. We were not, uh, frankly speaking, we never been communist. We were much more, let's say, uh, socialist with uh, huge fascination of the West. And I tell you my very personal story. Uh, my first visit to the West was '74, because mm-hmm. I was 20. It was London. A friend of my father was a worker in, in, in some car factory. He had uh, own small but own house and, and the comfort of his life was quite good. He was a fan of Arsenal. So, and to compare the, the, the situation of British worker with the situation of working class in Poland, it, it was a shock that to compare Poland, which was with Gierek, with some ideas of liberalization, some progress. You know, Gierek was a man who said, no, we cannot spend all money for military equipment. We have to develop consumption that people... And then, for example, he started the project, which was one of the best, small cars, small Fiat. This Fiat, it, it, it was a revolution because it was achievable. Na této dráze zkoušejí tovární jezdci štětinské automobilky vozy značky Fiat, vyráběné zde v licenci. It was possible to have this small car, and then in the 70s, my first car was this small Fiat, you know, as a young man. I, and normally to have a car in, in the communist country was only for nomenclatura or for quite rich, rich people. Well, okay, it was a shock. But the real shock was end of this year, because uh, me and my friends, we decided to go to spend, to welcome New Year in Moscow. Oh, uh, I tell you, to see... Soviet Union, the leading country of Soviet bloc, you know, the model for all of us, that was a disaster. And after this, 74 for me was, abs- and for, for all generation, it was absolutely obvious that the reforms are necessary. Of course, we should accept the geopolitics because we cannot change the decision of superpowers from Potsdam and, and Yalta. But it's necessary to escape from this type of political system, what we had in Poland, but especially in Soviet Union. But if you think back to that period yourself personally and think back maybe to about the mid-1980s, how personally ambitious were you at that point? Was there any part of you that was thinking, I'm going to be president in 10 years? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. I tell you, even, even two years before the election, I didn't think that I will be the president. But for me and, and my generation, it was a question of reforms. Reforms, reforms, reforms. And therefore, this roundtable, what was organized in 89, It was a sad chance for us. I was fully engaged in this in this process. I was one of the leaders of this event. Even if we didn't feel all these possible consequences, what was better for us? Because, uh, frankly speaking, 
if you would start, I'm speaking sometimes such joke, but that is not a joke, that is a reality of the situation. We started our roundtable talks February 89. And imagine that this historical picture, you know, uh, and it was live coverage in Polish TV. When first time Polish people should see live the leaders of the opposition. Tematem dnia w dalszym ciągu obrady Okrągłego Stołu rozpoczął pracę zespół do spraw pluralizmu związkowego. Współprzewodniczą Aleksander Kwaśniewski, Tadeusz Mazowiecki i Romuald Sosnowski. Gościem uczestników posiedzenia był także Lech Wałęsa. To ze względu na wagę omawianych problemów. Wydawało się, że będziecie... And many of them, they spent some years in the prison. And you see the chairman of this, uh, our side, let's say the side of the government, the Minister of Interior, Kiszczak, who before that many times arrested these interlocutors coming as the other side of this conversation, Michnik, Kuroń, Wałęsa, others. It was absolutely shocking, but extremely promising picture, you know. Poland is changing because uh, that is not discussion between Minister of Interior with, with the people in the prison, but in the biggest hall of the biggest palace in Warsaw, we have a meeting of, of two sides about future of Poland. And my joke is following. If during these three months, one day, the prophet could come to us and will say to both sides, look, if you will continue this roundtable, Communist Party in Poland will collapse. Of course, the break would be at least for 30 minutes, one hour. But, you know, the participants, you know, the laugh for Communist Party was zero on the side of the opposition. And on our side was not so strong. And I think we would decide to continue. But if next weeks uh, the prophet would come again and we say, look, if you will continue this roundtable, Soviet Union will collapse. I think the break would be not one hour, maybe one day, one day. But frankly speaking, both sides, they didn't love uh, Soviet Union so much. And we would decide that we would continue. But if next week the prophet would come again and say, if you will continue this roundtable, Germany will be united. Oh, I think it would be the problem and the break for a longer time. Why? Because it's, it was absolutely unimaginable. But everything happened. Lech Walesa, of course, the man you would defeat in the 1995 presidential election. And I, I am always interested in what the moment is that people who get to that point decide I'm going to do this. Because I think it's quite a common fantasy people have about being in charge and leading their country. But it strikes me that it must be... How much disbelief in yourself do you need to suspend to think... I'm going to run for president, I can win and I should win, I'm the right person to do this. Because you were at the time also a very young man. Yeah, but I was a young man with quite serious experience because I was a minister, etc. I was a leader of the political party of Polish Social Democracy. Since 1993, I was a chairman of Constitutional Committee of National Assembly. Uh, we prepared new constitution for Poland. And of course, um, it was not my dream to be president. But the political situation was that From the opposition side to Wałęsa, I'm the person the most popular with some, let's say, weight, with some, uh, of course, young, because uh, when I was elected, I was 41, so that all this election, the campaign was earlier. And frankly speaking, Wałęsa is a, he's a legend, and he was a legendary person of this uh, period, 80-81. He was also legendary leader of Solidarity, Uh, the organization which was much more a trade union. It was some kind of combination of political party, trade union, etc. 
and he was not uh, not very good president. I think that the best concept how to combine these two positions of the legend of and, and acting president is Mandela. Because he decided to play much more symbolical role as a president. And he decided to invite good people, good professional, pragmatic people to manage the country and, and, and the problems. And Valenza, because he was younger as Mandela, that is one of the reasons as well. And, and he's a very ambitious guy. He wanted to rule the country, really, and, and uh, to manage even much more as um, a president can do it. Uh, and it was a source of a lot of mistakes, misunderstandings and the problems. He was not well prepared for this role, frankly speaking. I mean, the, the, certainly from an outside perspective, the signature policies of your presidency are taking Poland into the EU, taking Poland into NATO. Was the reason that both of those were so important to you basically Russia, that, you just, that this was a means of keeping Russia forever on its side of the border? No, yes, but, but I tell you, when I think about my presidency, I see three um, milestones. Mm -hmm. That is what you mentioned, you, you, uh, NATO and, and, and constitution. Mm -hmm. And constitution was first because we accepted in the referendum the constitution in 97. Why constitution? Because Poland, after so long time of communism, then occupation, Second World War, then division on Poland, partition of Poland in, in the 19th century. We had only a very short period of, of independence between the First and Second World War, because 18, 1918 to 1939, 21 years. And it was not a time of very democratic country because we were in some semi-authoritarian system led by Marshal Piłsudski. It was such fashion in, in, in Europe those times. But uh, so the constitution was extremely important to create strong pillars for democracy, democratic institution, human rights and stability, democratic stability of the country and constitutional culture. What is very important thing is if you have a constitutional culture, it means that the people, the citizens, the institutions, they are working more or less according to the constitution. There's their shared assumptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the lack of this constitution, I call it constitutional culture, that, that, that is a problem, this is a weakness of the country. NATO, 99, was important, of course, first of all, because of Russia. Mm. Uh, because our history is, is so complicated and so dramatic. And especially in time, because when I was fighting for NATO, it was before Putin, it was with Yeltsin. And Yeltsin was, of course, very much against, but Yeltsin was a good partner, much better as Putin, because Yeltsin, of course, he never been the Democrat, but he had some kind of democratic instinct that if he had on the desk two decisions, more democratic and less democratic, mm -hmm. he decided generally support this more democratic decision. So he understood that sovereignty is sovereignty, that Poland has a right to decide about our future, etc. And of course, the situation in Russia was so unstable, so unpredictable, that for us, uh, we discussed two, two, two concepts, frankly speaking, even in my party, social democracy. We had two different ideas. One was Finlandization, means neutrality. Today, of course, it sounds funny. Well, even because, Finland's given up because, on it. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> Finland finally will be the member of NATO. But this time, this, this neutrality was quite a serious project for Poland. And the second, NATO membership. I was on the side of NATO membership because I said to my comrades and, and to public opinion in Poland that in this situation, when the Cold War is finished, we have end of this two-polar system with Soviet Union and United States, neutrality, frankly speaking, means gray zone of, of security. Mm. It's, it's a, not a guarantee. 
Were you able to have conversations directly with Vladimir Putin about this at the time? After. And of course, he never been a big fan of NATO, but he was much more open person in this period when I, I was meeting him until 2005. <laughs> Because he was new president, we are more or less the same generation, Putin is three years older, but I was old president and he was a new one, so that's, uh, my position was quite strong. And at those times he was ready to listen, he was ready to discuss some issues, but it changed very much after Maidan 2004. After Maidan, my last two conversations were, were very unpleasant, very tough, because mm -hmm. Putin was extremely interested to support Yanukovych, who falsificated this election. Mm -hmm. It was really fear of civil war, because thousands of people were on the Maidan, on the square, and thousands of uh, miners were transferred from Donetsk against these demonstrants in Kiev. So we were extremely close to civil war, and uh, one night... Kuchma, who was a president, and after his second and last term, he called me during the night and said, Alexander, come and help me because I have to stop the situation. I'm against the blood on the, on the streets. So I, I understood because Kuchma was a serious man and, and never, let's say, such uh, nervous. So I understood that it's necessary to help him. And I start, I organized such team, Solana, who was, let's say, Minister of Foreign Affairs of the European Union, and Adam, who's uh, president of Lithuania. Uh, so this, this three person, we went next day to, to Kiev and we started to organize round table again. You know, round table, this is maybe my second name, you know. This. <laughs> and in this round table, we had all parts, Yanukovych, Yushchenko, three of us. We invited also Russia. And after many, many discussions, we found the solution to the decision of uh, the Supreme Court to repeat the second round. And Putin was absolutely furiously against this solution. Well, again, when you think back to those conversations you were having with uh, Vladimir Putin, were you able to have any conversation that was less like two presidents talking to each other and more like just two men talking to each other? And in that kind of context, what does Vladimir Putin want to talk about? No, I tell you, this is necessary to understand. When I met Putin, it was 2000, 2005, and it was Putin number one. Mm -hmm. Today, probably, we have a Putin number four, number five, I don't know, but that is a very much different person. What is quite natural, because he's in power 22 years. Which is not good for anybody. That is that's very bad for everybody, and I think he is, a, to some extent, the slave of this situation. Mm -hmm. But what I can tell you about our conversation, they were quite open, he was ready to listen, and we had very, very good conversation in 2002, because he invited me to his private apartments in Kremlin, and we spent many hours together. And what was all very comfortable for him, I'm speaking Russian, so no translators, we were alone. And that is also typical for Russian culture, that if they are alone, that they are much more open. What he told me during this lengthy conversation, first, um, because I asked him, tell me, what are your main goals? What, what you want to achieve? And he told me two things which were quite natural, let's say, legitimate. Because the first was, I want to rebuild position of the Russian Federation on the international stage. Mm -hmm. And he did it. And secondly, I want to rebuild this great Russia. 
And it was much more dangerous for me because I understood that it means Great Russia, that it's not only in sense of Soviet Union, mm. because in this ideological perspective, he was not, not a communist. He, he was absolutely not very much interested about all these uh, Marxist, Leninist ideas, not. But this concept of Great Russia, it means the Russia in sense of Tsarist Russia or Soviet Union, sense of the territory. And of course, for that, Ukraine, and Belarus, they are absolutely crucial elements. And frankly speaking, without Ukraine, you cannot speak about Great Russia, historically even, because the history of Great Russia started in Kiev. So was he already talking then with this sort of like messianic, mystical sense yeah, of a, and a I greater Russia? I tell you, I tell you when, my impression after this discussion, because it was quite, uh, let's say, serious statement. Mm. Uh, but uh, my first feeling was that that's this... Uh, as a young president, probably his, that is his dream. Mm. And I understand, because what could be the dream of a new president of Russia? No? To have a great Russia. Well, after 2004, I think, after Maidan, what we discussed before, that was that started to be no longer a dream, but started to be a plan. It is necessary to do something with that. 2014, annexation, that is fulfillment of this plan. And 2022, the war, that is obsession. And today, in my opinion, the problem with this Putin number four is that about Ukraine, he thinks not in sense of even political plan, but in some kind of obsession. And that is really, really dangerous because he can use different instruments for that. The second element, what I remember from this 2002 conversation, very interesting, I asked him, Tell me, what, what, what do you think about Gorbachev? No one positive word. What do you think about Yeltsin? A little bit better, but also not very positive. And uh, tell me, who are such leaders of this country who you respect fully? And, and, and he told me, no, I see. That's this three person on Peter the Great, Katerina the Great, and Joseph Vissarionovich. And what is interesting, he didn't say Stalin, he said Joseph Vissarionovich was much more, much softer. And uh, because really they created some uh, great, great uh, Russia. And then I started to, 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 to make a joke. I understand that you want to be number four on this list. Ha 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 ha, of course, he, he, he didn't say yes, but I had on the end of my mouth to say to him, but I didn't say it, that if you would be number four on this list, you would be only the second Russian. Because Katerina was German and uh, Joseph Stalin was, was Georgian. But it was his... Uh, he told me so that uh, after so many years, 20 years after, I can tell you that to some extent his decision and his kind of politics cannot be surprised for us. I didn't believe in this full-scale war, frankly speaking, because mm. I was asked before that many times. Uh, because I thought, because what I remember, Putin was a pragmatic man understanding some limits, understanding this political game, etc. And for me, such full-scale war, it was against this pragmatism. And why I can explain to you, after so many years, why Putin decided to cross this red line, that is the obsession. Because if you are obsessed, you cannot understand that that is absolutely against, against you, against your country. And that's the problem, that's uh, because... Putin wants to control entire Ukraine, I have no doubts. Even now, after all these problems what he has in Donetsk. But he cannot count all these elements in a very realistic way. And that's, that's his problem with Putin, in my opinion, now.
But do you think, and I'm, I'm wondering if this informed your thinking as you went along, that the relationship between Russia and what we now think of the rest of Europe is necessarily adversarial? Is Russia in some way just so fundamentally different, so fundamentally Russia, that there's no way it can be incorporated into the... I present you to a very important book of your countryman, Simon Sebak Montefiore, you know, that's Oxford historian, and he published not very long time ago, maybe five, six years, the book, he published many books about young Stalin, Stalin, etc. Fantastic books. But this one is, in my opinion, very, very important to understand Russia. That is a history of Romanov's dynasty. Huge book, fantastic. You know, you can read it as a crime, as a love story, as a political book, everything. But, you know, I read this 800 or more pages. And my first reflection was, and that is answer to your question, what is Russia? And if some who will tell you that Russia is a European country, is absolutely not true. But if some who will tell you that Russia is Asian country, is not true as well. It's absolutely different entity. It is different, different type of the of the state, of the political culture, of the history, etc. So, in my opinion, that is a problem for all of us in coming decades or centuries. I don't believe that Russia after Putin can be changed in a very democratic way, even if Navalny one day will be the next leader of this country, because in the Russian DNA is so many elements very well described by Montefiore. That is such understanding of, of the greatness. That is um, the feeling of imperial role in the world and absolutely lack of sensitivity. Uh, for, for the individuals, for other nations, etc. That is very, very complicated combination of behaviors, of understanding, of feelings, of values, etc., etc. There is an election not far off uh, in Poland. What would you say, and this is a question being faced by, I guess, centre-left social democrats, not just in Poland, but across Europe, notably in recent weeks in Sweden and Italy. How do you win that argument? Well, that's not easy, but it's possible still. And and I'm very much... uh, I don't want to compare this, uh, let's say, Russian thinking, the thinking of Russian people and populists in our countries. Mm-hmm. First, uh, I think uh, these populists, they have 20-25% of support, not 60 or, or 70. Secondly, we have democratic systems, so still the alternative to the populism exists and, and in my opinion will exist. The problem with populism is quite complicated. Why? Because since uh, financial crisis, uh, the 2007-8, Lehman Brothers and, and the consequences, the time of democratic zone, that is a time of crises. Mm. And of course, crises are the best, uh, what we know from the fascists, etc. The crises are the best soil for populists. And look, after financial crisis, we had the Brexit. After Brexit, we had the migration crisis and uh, politics of um, Chancellor Merkel. After migration crisis, we had uh, COVID pandemic. And after pandemic, we have Russian aggression against Ukraine. So that is a time when the feeling of stability, the feeling of predictability is very limited. And that is really good space for populists. I think with populists, we can win um, uh, first. It's necessary to listen what the voters of populists are saying, because I think we should answer some of these fears or, or even not very clever uh, clever opinions, etc. 
The second, we have to change the language of communication. And this is probably the main problem of traditional political parties. I think the role of traditional political parties is, is necessary to change much more uh, in the direction of some kind of movements uh, of the organization which are concentrated with one, two, three big ideas and not with such huge, very wide political program. And finally, it's necessary to find leaders. Because I think one of the problems in the politics, what I observed in the last 20 years, is a decreasing role of the political leaders and increasing role of the specialists of public relations. I, I tell you, frankly speaking, the success of Meloni in Italy, because I watched this campaign quite, quite carefully, is because she looks that... She believes in, in, in many of our ideas about what she's speaking. And, and that is different with Salvini or, or, or Berlusconi. They are totally different person. Mm. Meloni looks like a person who believes in, in, in own political program, which is very rare in politics. <laughs> um, I, I just have one final question, if I might. We were speaking earlier about the moment at which you decide to become president and find yourself getting elected. And I know you didn't lose an election. You served your two terms, which was the constitutional maximum, and then left office. But again, you were not an old man when elected. You were certainly not an old man when you left office at only 51. How hard was it not being president anymore? How big an adjustment is that? Well, this is not easy. And I think, um, especially after so long time, uh, we paid some some price, especially with physical health and with psychology. This job is uh, complicated and uh, exhausting. I, I, I give you a very simple example, because we were the group of quite young politicians under such high positions. Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Barack Obama, myself. And, you know, all of us, we started with more normal color of our hairs. <laughs> and all of us, after 10 or 8 years, we finished with um, gray hairs being still young people, you know. Mm. Look what's happened with Barack Obama. He was also elected being 45, 6, something, something like that. Yeah. And then he finished as a young man. And today he looks much more like Morgan Freeman, you know, and, <laughs> and not Barack Obama from, from, from his presidential time. So we had first, first reaction is such problems. And then, of course, is a question how to reorganize own life mm. and uh, how to find some place to uh, use your very unique experience, because to be president, I tell you, I am kidding sometimes in Poland, that we in Poland, we have the smallest professional group, and that is a group of ex-presidents. So it's only three persons. But we didn't decide to organize trade union because we know very well who would be the chairman of this group. Of course, Mr. Wałęsa is a as a good specialist of trade unions. No, but I think I found this place because I'm active in, in, many, in many countries. I was in the group of international advisors in Kazakhstan, now in Uzbekistan. I'm still very much involved in Ukraine, what today is, is extremely important. But to finish our conversation, I tell you, after presidency, I met in Washington in favorite place of Bill Clinton, Cafe Milano. Mm -hmm. We met each other and we started to discuss what means to be ex-president and what kind of feelings are connected with that. And we found very good description. To be ex-president, the feeling of ex-president, this is combination of liberation and frustration. <laughs> Why? Liberation, because finally you can do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. You can meet, you want to meet, etc. Yeah, so that, that's this nice feeling of liberation. And why frustration? 
because unfortunately you watch your successor and, and that's his activity or her activity. And this is a problem. And I think that's his correct description, not only for ex-politicians, but ex-CEO of the companies, ex-editor-in-chiefs of, of media, etc., etc. Life, that's his life. President Alexander Krasniewski, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle 24. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle, edited by Jack Dewars, and recorded by Christy O'Grady. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>